0: In 1889, New York's Electrical Execution Law, the first of its kind in the world, went into effect. A year later, New York State had three functional electric chairs to carry out capital punishment, an alternative to the gallows. There was one at Sing Sing in the Hudson Valley, Dannemora in the North Country, and one at Auburn Prison, about 20 miles west of Syracuse. Auburn's chair delivered the very first electrocution execution. Electrocution as a means of execution was thought to be clean, quick, and humane, but in reality it was sometimes a much more gruesome affair. On August 6, 1890, William Kemmler, convicted of killing his common-law wife, would be the chair's first victim. The electrocution did not go smoothly with multiple waves of high-voltage current burning through Kemmler's flesh. Between 1888 and 1965, New York State had the death penalty. In that time, five men from in and around the Syracuse area were executed in an electric chair for their crimes. The electric chair that killed William Kemmler would be the same one that awaited the subject of our next story about a man who killed a beloved Syracuse detective in broad daylight, a block or so from Syracuse's City Hall. After a sensational trial, his final judgment would be in Auburn Prison's electric chair. I'm Sunny Hernandez.
1: And I'm Josh MacDonald. This is The Condemned. The stories of five men with different paths who arrived at the same destination, the electric chair. Here is our second story. July 31st, 1893 was a Monday. That morning found the city of Syracuse's downtown humming with commerce, basking in the fine summer weather. Shopkeepers opened their stores. Customers looked for deals at the farmer's market in Clinton Square. Diners ate breakfast at Palmer's Government Cafe and work continued at the new Bestable Theater. But the people of Syracuse were uneasy. Banks and businesses an hour and a half away in Rochester, New York, had been hit with a rash of safe crackings and burglaries. As summer approached, the crime wave traveled east and had crested in the central New York region. The detectives of the city police force had not been idle while safes were being sacked and dwellings burglarized right and left, the Syracuse Standard newspaper reported. A post office had been robbed of $200 and $1,000 worth of postage stamps. A home was hit by burglars. On July 5th, a downtown Syracuse shoe store had been broken into and had its safe cracked, and pounds and pounds of nickels and dimes were stolen. Crimes multiplied. People worried.
0: Daniel Savage was the head waiter at Palmer's Government Cafe on Warren Street in downtown Syracuse. During the crime wave, the waiter had for weeks noticed two men, one tall and brawny, the other short and younger, eating silently in the back of the restaurant. Savage figured the two were new to the city, but he watched them closely. They sat away from others in the diner and never spoke to anyone. They dressed plainly, and yet they ordered the best of everything. Incredibly, they would drop up to $5 for their meals, which today would be around $145. After the burglary at the city shoe store, the newcomers disappeared only adding to Savage's suspicions. After a while, the two strangers returned to dine. At the end of their meal, Savage knew he had been waiting tables for criminals. When the bill came, the men paid in piles and piles of nickels and dimes.
1: Fred Palmer, the owner of the cafe, called Syracuse Police Headquarters, which at the time was located inside City Hall, a short walk away on Warren Street. There are some suspicious characters at breakfast here, Palmer said, and I think you want them. The only detective on duty was James Harvey, and he was having a rough morning. Before work, the 54-year-old detective had gone to an undertaker's office and made the last payment on his wife's funeral expenses, leaving him sad and down. Dressed in civilian clothes, Detective Harvey made the short walk from City Hall to Palmer's Cafe. As was his custom, he did not carry a gun, believing it was only necessary when he had to apprehend only the most desperate characters.
0: He arrived at the restaurant and the two suspected burglars were pointed out to him. One was tall with a derby hat on his head. The other was shorter and younger, dressed in a straw hat. Harvey started toward them, but Palmer asked him to stop, not wanting a scene inside his restaurant. Harvey agreed. He waited outside, pretending to look casual by inspecting ears of corn at Perry's Seed Store just north of the café. When the two men exited the restaurant, Harvey followed closely behind eventually pulling the two into a doorway for a short conversation. Harvey positioned himself between the two and held each by an arm. The tall man was on his left, the short man in the straw hat on his right. They started walking north on Warren Street. When they were 50 yards from City Hall, one of the men shouted something. Some witnesses thought it was, Let her go! Harvey got tripped up, and the short man struck him on the back of the head with a revolver. A dazed Harvey turned and looked at the men. The taller one had his revolver pointed at Harvey's face and pulled the trigger. The bullet entered Harvey near his right eye and exited out the left side of his head. He fell with a groan. Everyone froze. Several bystanders rushed to him as he uttered his final words, Lord, have mercy on my soul.
1: The murderer and his companion did not hesitate and started running east. After crossing the Warren Street Bridge, they separated. The smaller of the men walked into a clothing store, hoping to escape out the back. Instead, he was met by one of the store's helpful clerks. The clerk thought the man looked pale and breathless, but nevertheless tried to sell him a suit of clothes. To the question of what he needed, the man replied only, "Uh, Socks. What size? "Uh, Tens, the nervous man answered, keeping an eye on the front entrance of the shop. The socks cost 25 cents. The man placed three dimes on the counter and ran out of the back without waiting for his nickel. He disappeared into the streets of Syracuse. His tall companion was not so lucky.
0: Syracuse resident Richard Malone was just feet from where the shooting had happened and took off in pursuit of the gunman. Soon he was joined by five others crying, murder, murder, then by dozens. In moments, more than a hundred people joined the chase. Catch him, stop him. Shoot him, they yelled. The man was a fast runner, but Richard Malone kept pace. Malone and the crowd chased him up and down the city streets, even bursting through a passing funeral procession. The man tried to hide beneath the stoop of a home. The crowd gathered. Syracuse police officers with a wagon arrived on the scene. Throw up your hands, an officer shouted. Instead, the man dropped his hands to his side. At that moment, Malone, who had chased him to the stoop, grabbed the gunman by the hair and pulled him out into the open. The man was loaded into a wagon and taken to the police station. But that wasn't going to be easy. The crowd, more than a hundred people and growing, was on the verge of becoming an angry mob, and they wanted to string up the man right then and there.
1: The people of Syracuse were furious. They had seen one of their own, a devoted officer, a father, a son who looked after his 94-year-old father, shot down in broad daylight in the heart of downtown. They wanted revenge. Lynch him! Lynch him! The crowd shouted as the police wagon made its way to headquarters. In a dense mass, the throng was packed around the dray, and the man's life seemed scarcely worth a moment's purchase, the Evening Herald reported. The scene was awful, and louder and louder rose the cries for speedy vengeance. People surrounded the wagon. The officers inside, with great skill, Made the short ride to the police station on Water Street, where the maddened crowd was doubled by those who had remained at the murder scene. At the door, the prisoner was pulled from the wagon, and at least four men rushed at him, one even striking him. He was hurried inside. The heavy doors of the building slammed shut in the faces of the excited crowd. Once inside, he was made to walk by the cold, lifeless body of Detective James Harvey, lying on a stretcher on the floor by the entrance. He was searched. A large roll of money was found in his sock. He had on his person burglary tools, including the latest devices known to safe blowers, which to the police proved that he and his comrade were responsible for the recent string of robberies. Then the police were in for a surprise. They found in the man's jacket a 44 caliber Colt revolver and a 38 Smith & Wesson, both fully loaded.
0: Was it possible that the man was not the killer of Harvey? Maybe it was the smaller man who had seemingly vanished from the city. Impossible, Syracuse Police Chief Charles Wright said. They had the right man. He must have refilled the one-spent chamber while he was running, or maybe while he was hiding under the stoop prior to being captured. The arrested man said his name was George Barnes, but he refused to say where he was from. All I ask is that you give me a fair show, he said. Wait till you examine the matter and I'll prove I am all right. Yes. You'll be given a show, an officer replied. This quieted the prisoner. He asked for some cigarettes and was given five packs, which he smoked one after another. With a crowd demanding him at the end of a rope and police inside writing up details of the murder, George Barnes sat alone in his cell, coolly smoking.
1: While the situation inside the station was calm, outside it was anything but. Despite the capture and arrest of the alleged gunman, a mob of citizens remained outside of City Hall calling for George Barnes's head, and waiting for the apprehension of his accomplice. Rarely in all its history has the community been so deeply moved," the Syracuse Herald wrote. The tragic event was the all-engrossing topic, and the people neither did nor could talk about anything else. Any movement by the police wagon, or any rumor from the police station, would send a crowd following behind, hoping to see Barnes's accomplice be captured. A half-witted countryman was charged with a minor violation but the mob mistook him for the murderer's comrade and nearly grabbed him from the arresting officer.
0: Outside the police station, the crowd still called for Barnes to be lynched. Had there been one man in the crowd to take leadership, a prominent citizen told the Syracuse Courier, that prisoner would never have been taken into the station alive. There were certainly men enough to overpower the police at that time. Every man in the crowd would have been glad to see the wretch's body dangling from a telegraph pole, but not a single one of them dared to take the first step. The crowd remained there all day and all night. As dawn broke on August 1st, police finally roped off the block around City Hall from traffic and patrolled all day by firefighters. Interest in the case was so great that police chief Wright allowed a Herald reporter to do a quick interview with George Barnes. For the first time, Syracusans could read the words of the cold-blooded killer. He was called a cigarette fiend, Described as cool and calm, expressing little concern as to his present predicament, he confidently declared that they couldn't prove he did anything.
1: Barnes was also very interested in what was being said about him. I suppose public sentiment is against me, he said. But everything will come out right at the trial. What do the people say? The reporter told him that people thought he would never be proved innocent of a murder unless his partner was found. What do they mean by that? he asked sharply. If I were walking down the street with you and you shot a man. I don't see how I could be the least to blame. He became angry when he was to have his picture taken, saying he did not want his parents to see him like this. For police, the real difficulty was getting Barnes past the crowds to the photographer's gallery. A carriage was pulled up to a police station window, and after looking to see if the coast was clear, Barnes was pulled through it, still handcuffed to Detective O'Brien. Police led the carriage along the alleyways to the studio.
0: Once inside, Barnes sat down, but refused to cooperate with the photographer. He closed his eyes and bowed his head. His hands were tied with twister handcuffs, small, innocent-looking torture devices. They consisted of a chain-link loop that was wrapped around a prisoner's wrists. Twist a key, and the loop would tighten. O'Brien turned the twister and said, If you treat us square, we will treat you so. We want a picture of you. A few more turns of the twister and Barnes complied. By then, word had gotten out that Barnes was at the studio, and a crowd was waiting outside. How tough he looks, and is that the murderer? People said. The carriage was chased back to the station by the throng. Inside his cell, Barnes raged about having his photograph taken. In a short while, everyone learned why the man sitting in the cell did not want his face in the papers. He had lied about his identity. Police from around the country soon let their brethren in Syracuse know that the man sitting in their cell was one of the country's most notorious criminals.
1: After his photograph appeared in a St. Louis newspaper, the city's police chief telegraphed Syracuse on August 12, 1893. Hold Lucius R., alias Dink Wilson, alias George Barnes. I want him for train robbery. There is no doubt of his identity. Then he added, I will send for him when you're through with him but I would much prefer that you would have him electrocuted first. The police chief from Kansas City wrote saying that Syracuse had apprehended the infamous Dink Wilson of the notorious Hedge Path 4. Suspicions were confirmed on August 24th, when Wilson's shorter partner in crime had finally been caught in Buffalo, New York. Through a mouthful of busted teeth after a Buffalo cop smashed him in the mouth with a revolver, he said that his name was Charles Wilson, Dink's younger brother.
0: Lucius and Charles Wilson were raised outside of Omaha, Nebraska. When they were mere lads at school, they gained a reputation for desperate daring which caused them to be feared and avoided by their playfellows, the Omaha Bee reported after their arrest in Syracuse. Their older sister Nettie had worked as a clerk in the Nebraska State Legislature and was regarded as a young woman of great promise. She used her considerable influence to help get her brothers out of scrapes with the law until her brother's reputation tainted her own, forcing her to resign. They blew open a safe at Omaha Street Car Company and made off with $700. In Iowa in 1891, they led a gang which robbed a train of $20,000 outside of Ames. At this point, the brothers separated. Charles moved west and was arrested after committing a burglary in San Francisco, escaping on his way to serve time at San Quentin Prison.
1: Dink Wilson joined the Hedgepath Four, led by the debonair bandit Marion Hedgepath. The gang went on a wild rampage of robbery and violence in Missouri throughout 1891, prompting the New York Times to call them the most desperate gang of train robbers that has operated in this country for many years. On Christmas Eve 1891, they performed their greatest heist, holding up a train at Glendale, Missouri. They used dynamite to disable the train, then shot and killed the train's messenger before making off with $40,000. They escaped to Salt Lake City, Utah, with the Pinkerton Detective Agency hot on their trail. They split the money and separated. Dink Wilson made his way to Costa Rica, then Bermuda, before returning to the United States. In 1893, he reunited with his younger brother and began a crime wave across upstate New York before fate brought the two brothers together on Warren Street in Syracuse over the shooting of Detective James Harvey. The Wilson brothers were indicted in October. They were given an able attorney named Harrison Hoyt. They would be tried separately, with Dink going first.
0: Hoyt was in a difficult, probably hopeless position. There were many eyewitnesses who said they saw Dink Wilson, dressed in a derby hat, shoot Detective Harvey in the face... But there were just as many who claimed they saw a man in a straw hat, like the one Charles Wilson was wearing, fire the fatal shot. There was also the fact that Dink's guns were fully loaded when he was captured. But to prove that Dink was not guilty of murder in the first degree, he had to prove that his other client, Charles Wilson, was. It probably didn't even matter... The law at the time said that people could face a first-degree murder charge and the electric chair if their felony ended in the death of another person. From all angles, Dink looked doomed.
1: The trial of Lucius Dink Wilson for the murder of Detective James Harvey began on October 30, 1893, with Justice P.B. McLennan presiding. The morbid curiosity of the townspeople continued. Every day, crowds of people stood outside hoping to get a seat— McClennan did all he could to keep the trial from turning into a sideshow. He immediately ordered that the idly curious boys, loafers, and tramps would not be welcome inside the courtroom. Great crowds of 200 to 400 people stood around outside all day throughout the trial, hoping to see the Wilsons by peering in from the windows. On the other hand, he could not stop women from attending, although he and the press very much wanted to. There were perhaps 25 women and girls admitted to the courtroom, the Herald reported on October 31st, the first day of testimony. It is feared that they are actuated by a morbid and unwholesome curiosity that ought not to be tolerated. During one day of testimony, a woman broke out laughing. McClennan lashed out at her and the other women in the courtroom, saying, It is not a case for sport, and there is a whole lot of you that ought to stay away. District Attorney B.J. Shove began the trial with a thunderous opening statement. Just three months ago today, as God's pure sunshine was streaming down, Detective James A. Harvey was murdered, foully murdered, treacherously murdered, and by two of the most desperate criminals who ever came within the confines of this county.
0: Dink Wilson was described as cool and calm through the prosecution's opening, giving only an occasional small smile or smirk as he would throughout the trial. Over the next few days, the prosecution presented its case. The most dramatic testimony came from 10-year-old Ames Howlett, who often visited Harvey at work and watched as the slain detective walked the two Wilson brothers toward the police station that fateful day. There was no doubt to him that Dink shot him. A man named Fred Lestrange testified that he was in the middle of Water Street when Harvey was shot. He swore he saw Dink shoot the officer, positive that the killer wore a Derby hat. On November 3rd, the defense began presenting its case. Wilson's lawyer, Harrison Hoyt, just wanted to prove there was enough reasonable doubt to prevent a conviction. He began by declaring that the murder of the innocent detective was a terrible thing. He said that the prosecution's witness had been mixed up. They had transposed the two Wilson men. For every witness for the prosecution who placed the gun in Dink's hand, the defense had one who said it was the other Wilson in the straw hat. It did not matter. The jury received the case at about 7 p.m. on Saturday, November 4th, and reached the verdict before breakfast the next morning. Dink Wilson knew what was coming. Well, George, they have not killed you yet, jailer Shannon said to him when he woke Wilson that morning, still using his alias instead of his real name. No, when they kill me, they'll murder me, Wilson replied. The jury found him guilty. Wilson who did not testify, and had remained passive throughout the trial, finally lashed out after the verdict. If that is what you call Onondaga County justice, all right, if I had shot the man on sight, it would have been different.
1: He was still in a rage a few days later at his sentencing. In a packed courtroom, with every seat, aisle, and standing area filled, Wilson, who was said to have looked far more haggard than he ever had, addressed the city where he had caused so much pain. It was a most remarkable and ungrateful speech, the Daily Journal said, which left the crowd almost breathless. I do not think I have had a fair trial in this city. I think I have been denied privileges that should become the rights of a prisoner. I have been refused to see the newspapers, and there has been a great many damaging reports to my character in them. I have been forced to go to trial in this city where it was almost impossible to obtain justice on account of such prejudiced feelings, and I don't think by any means that I had a fair show for my life. Justice McLennan was not moved. Without hesitation, the journal reported, McLennan pronounced the sentence and his words could be heard in every corner of the room. It was most impressive and his words were delivered in a manner which must echo in the cell of the murderer for days. McLennan said that Wilson was given a fair and impartial trial and then sentenced him to death by the causing of a current of electricity to pass through your body. Then he spoke directly to Wilson. Your race is now nearly run. There is but a step for you between the known and the great unknown, with all of its mysteries. For you may be certain, Wilson, that for the awful crime you did commit on that beautiful July morning, you will pay the penalty with your life. Audience members wept at the words, while Wilson never flinched. Your bravado will not avail you. Your wonderful exhibition of nerve will fail you. Your vaunted bravery and desperate daring will give place to cowardice and abject fear. The law's firm hand is upon you and as it clutches you tighter and tighter still with each passing day, you yourself will wonder at the utter insignificance and helplessness of the notorious Dink Wilson. Dink spent his remaining days arguing not only for his own innocence, but also his little brother's. His appeals went nowhere.
0: Dink was scheduled to die May 14, 1894. He was the sixth person to sit in the brand new electric chair at Auburn Prison. The device had been built in the prison's workshop. It looked like a simple, four-legged, heavy oak chair with a high back. It was bolted to the floor. A thick, black electric wire ran from the base of the chair to the wall. It was described as grim and uncompromising, without a single curved line. On the chair were two electrodes. One was an inverted metal bowl which was strapped to the head. The second was placed directly on the condemned's back in the earliest executions, but later moved to the lower right leg. The death chamber was kept empty except for witnesses, and sometimes as many as a dozen doctors. The executioner would strap the convicted to the chair via the chest, waist, wrists, and ankles, and then place a leather mask over the condemned's face. He would then retreat behind a wall where he would flip a switch. Some executions in Auburn Prison before Wilson were disasters. During the execution of a man named William Taylor, 1,260 volts were sent through his body but the chair shattered and the secondhand generator supplying the current burned out. Taylor, in unbelievable pain, was carried alive to the nearby autopsy table and given a dose of ether to keep him alive for the moment. The prison staff, without a generator, flung power cables over the prison walls and connected them to the local power grid. Another shock did in Taylor.
1: Dink Wilson spent his final days with his lawyers. He maintained his innocence, raged about his treatment in Syracuse, and wrote a statement to be read after his death. He slept soundly the night before, but rose early, dressed, and began pacing his cell. The night guard bade him good luck after his shift ended. Well, it can't be helped, Wilson responded. He was given a big breakfast of steak, eggs, coffee, toast, and a pineapple, but his appetite failed him, and he ate only the fruit and a bit of the toast. At 11 a.m., his final meal was served, right from the warden's table. Broiled trout, lettuce, milk, potatoes, salad, eggs, bread, and a bottle of beer. Wilson only drank the beer, then started smoking cigarettes, which he did right up until the time he was summoned to go to the death chamber. When the door to his cell was knocked on, meaning it was time to go, Wilson dropped his last cigarette to the floor and told an attendant, Pick that up, will you? He refused all religious guidance, declaring, I am skeptic. He was dressed in a well-fitting suit of black. His hair was neatly brushed, and a reporter said he looked nothing like the desperado he was.
0: As attendants strapped him into the chair, Wilson surprised the audience by speaking to them. "'imploring them about his younger brother's innocence. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'I desire to say that the man who is confined in the Syracuse jail "'is in no way connected with this case, in no way whatever. "'He is perfectly innocent of these charges.' "'As an electrode was fastened to his head "'and the mask placed over his face, Wilson said, "'I have made a written statement which is in the hands of my attorney "'and which is true in every sense of the word.' That was all. He made a small, bow-like gesture toward the audience, then the warden gave the signal, and 1,680 volts were sent through his body. He straightened in the chair. The Rochester Democrat and Chronicle reported, he was undoubtedly dead in an instant, the current immediately shattering his nerve centers. The voltage was decreased to about 150 volts after five seconds, then gradually increased for three seconds before it was reduced again for the remainder of a minute. After the one minute, physicians were invited to examine the body. The only problem was they had all forgotten a stethoscope, so they placed their ears to Wilson's chest. He was dead. A letter was sent to his family in Nebraska asking about what should be done with his remains. They wrote back they could not afford to have it shipped home. He was buried in quicklime on the prison grounds.
1: Newspapers raved about Wilson's death as the most successful electrocution ever performed. The Syracuse Courier gushed. Four minutes from the time that Keeper Shaw rapped on the door to Dink's cell, the man had been brought in, strapped to the chair, the current turned on, turned off, and five doctors had pronounced death to have been instantaneous, all in four minutes. The Elmira Telegram said, The desirability of electricity as a means for carrying out the command of the law could never be questioned by the person witnessing an execution similar to that of Lucius Wilson. That death was painless and instantaneous, there can be no doubt. In Dink Wilson's written statement, he again said that his incarcerated brother Charlie had nothing to do with Detective Harvey's murder, this time saying he was not even there at the time. He asked that his personal articles, guns and everything, be sent to his other brother, Frank Wilson, who he wrote a personal note to. Frank, take things as cool as possible and try not to grieve more than necessary and send tokens to the folks.
0: Charles Wilson remained in the Syracuse jail while prosecutors waited for the passion surrounding Dink's trial to cool down. They figured they could not find a fair jury until then. His case finally went to trial in September 1894. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death and brought to Auburn Prison. On June 11, 1895, New York State Governor Levi Morton commuted his death sentence, ordering him to serve the rest of his life in prison. In 1903, Wilson started hearing voices in his head, and was relocated over four hours away to the Danamora Hospital for the Criminally Insane. In 1919, after 26 years in jail, he was granted parole and lived for the rest of his days in Utah with his brother. There are some in Syracuse who believe that City Hall is haunted by the ghost of Charles Wilson, who endured pangs of guilt for killing a police detective and letting someone else, his own brother, pay the price. This concludes the story of Dink Wilson. Next time on The Condemned, we learn about Giovanni Fabri and his rival Louis Mangino, whose night out with friends turned deadly. The Condemned is hosted by Sonny Hernandez and Josh McDonald, Stories written by Jonathan Croyle and Steve Karlick with editing assistance from Sonia Duntley. Recorded and produced by Katrina Tulloch. Thank you for listening to The Condemned. Want more? Check out Syracuse.com Condemned to see historical images, videos, and additional stories connected to the electric chair. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your friends and rate and review our series as it helps new listeners find us. We really appreciate it. This is a Syracuse.com production.